0: Welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people, and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today on an unexpectedly gorgeous summer's day, looking out over the industrious bowling green in Fitz Park, Keswick, in the company of author, illustrator, and our guide for today's walk, Mark
1: Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, Dave. Well, what a special place, Fitz Park, right at the centre of the social buzz of Keswick the beginnings of the greenery beside the river Greta and uh, a popular place over many decades as a place of congregation and celebration of being in the Cumbrian fells i've always loved the immaculately maintained
0: bowling greens here and there's always this lovely feel in Fitz park isn't there of community use you've got over the other side of the road you've got the fabulous cricket pitch and we're here today, Mark, for a wander up, a lowly fell, but surely one of the best in the Lake District.
1: Oh yes, Latrick, Skidders Cub, as they used to say. I think that's an allusion to Brentata foxhounds with a fox cub. It was uh, always a special hill. And if you ever climb it, as many, many people do, they relish that majestic view and I'm looking forward to recanting it when we get there. The other thing about La Trigue, which is fascinating
0: is it holds a very important role in the history of the conservation movement in this country. It was here 87 years ago, I believe, that a group of people passionate about the outdoors, passionate about our landscapes, met to climb Latrig.
1: The sublime landscape also had an emotional aspect that people took seriously. And at that moment, back in 1937, I think it was, they had a rally here. And our guest today will explore that and many other things associated with the Friends of the Lake District.
0: Yes, our guest today is Douglas Chalmers, outgoing chief exec of... Friends of the Lake District, a charity that I believe both you and me, Mark, are lifetime members of? Is yeah, right? I, I joined 21, I think, at that time. And Goodness me, just a couple of years back. That's over 50 years ago. Crikey. <laughs> right. I, okay, I joined a little bit later than you, but um, very important charity. It'd be interesting to speak to Douglas today about where we are in that continued effort to retain what's special about this place. Talk about what he's learned over the past few years that he's been in this job um, and talk about how all of us can contribute I suppose to keeping this fabulous place that both you and I adore along with many millions of others how we can keep it um, special so let's go and meet Douglas Charles
1: Well, after the rains of recent days, it's rather special to be able to come to Keswick on a gloriously blue sky day. It's a golden opportunity to speak to somebody rather special in terms of this wonderful landscape. And I've got Douglas Chalmers with me today. Could you tell us something about yourself?
2: I am Douglas Chalmers. I am Chief Executive of Friends of the Lake District. I've been uh, in that role nearly seven and a half years and I'm just about to step down. It's time for somebody else to take on what is probably the best job in the world. My accent probably gives me away as an offcomer, but we have been in Cumbria for nearly 30 years now. And I have to say, and this, this might come out later, if it's not too much heresy, I am a very, very late convert to the Lake District. In my younger days, I could not see the attraction of, of the Lake District at all. Mm. It was the eastern side of the of the county that brought us here, but once you discover the Lake District, then you understand, you've understand. you got to be there to, to understand it. This is another Eden. The Eden Valley, where we live. <laughs> um, Fitzpark, you're absolutely right. If you go back to June 1934, it was our founding rally. It's a glorious day, and I think if you read John Dower's biography, when you realise that... He was carrying the boxes of leaflets into the rally and he was plotting sweat. Uh, It must have been a day very similar today, but this is where a number of uh, very influential people and disparate uh, smaller organisations came together to form Friends of the Lake District. And that was the voice, the informed voice that would work on a national basis to work towards the creation of the Lake District National Park.
1: Well, we're re-walking a very special walk today and could you give us a little bit of a clue as to what the significance of it
2: is, Douglas? Even in my time, we've done a number of events up here, but if you go right back pre friends of the Lake District time, Latrig is one of the places where there was an early walk where people tried to create this public access, where it was um, all in private ownership in the true Cumbrian way. When this happened in Kinder Scout, it ended up with fisticuffs and uh, court cases and people in jail. Uh, when it happened up here, everybody just had a meeting and then they came to an agreement. So everything was in a far more civilised way. So Latrig sort of looms large in allowing the public access to our great outdoors.
1: Well, uh, the day is luring us to climb the hill. It's a glorious day. Let's get on with it. Well, we've turned off the Home Road and we've embarked on a rough track which leads up on the laddering and uh, is adopted by the Cumbria Way. And the view I suddenly get before me is skidder, skidder little man, and the heather-clad slopes up there are still quite brown. They haven't started coming into bloom because we're only July yet. We're a month off the first purple hints, which would be
2: marvellous. Douglas, what drew you to the great outdoors? I'm a farm boy. Uh, my family all farm in Aberdeenshire on the on the Buckham Plateau. If you think of the map, the cold shoulder above Aberdeen that sticks out into the North Sea. We've got one hill, Mormon Hill, in the middle of it. Very few trees. If you go back in history, Robert the Bruce fell out with the common family, killed all the people, killed all the livestock, destroyed all the trees. People in livestock came back, trees never did. And I grew up there, but it was where I lived, it was where I just played, uh, it was where I, as I got older, started to work on the farm. And you just never notice it. It was just where you are, it's your place. And then when I went to university, and I remember that my first day at university, and uh, my roommate, We Steve, was, was lying on the bed. I was the fresh-faced farmer's boy, probably had my face washed by my mum, my jeans were pressed by my mum, my shoes were cleaned by my mum. Uh, And we, Steve was lying in there in his singlet and his big flares and his biker jacket hanging over the edge. From Port Glasgow, really industrial, you'd say deprived, industrial, West Scotland. And yet, on his motorbike, he would go out to Argyll uh, and he would fish. The effort that he went to, to appreciate the countryside, actually made me stop and think. And I thought, well, yes, I listened to the, the chuchets, the lapwings and the oyster catchers, and I built dams in the barns, and I watched the har coming in off the North Sea. Mm. And up there, we got these amazing sunsets where you've got this orangey-yellow sky and, and the sea just goes deep violet and I still haven't seen better sunsets than you get up there. Everything was was slower back then on farms, and there was fewer soundproofed, insulated, Wi-Fi-enabled tractor cabs, and you were more immersed in it. And speaking to somebody who actually had to go to an effort to enjoy the countryside made me just stop and think and appreciate more where I came from. But even now I find that if you're rushing around doing somewhere, you don't you don't stop and appreciate it. But every now and again, especially in an area like this, if you go around a different corner, sounds a bit like George Michael, but if you go around a different corner, different direction, different time of day, different light, a different mood, you see something and you just stop. You just have to get out and just savour it. I say I'm a late convert to this area. But every now and again, you just get one of those moments and you think, where am I? And how on earth did that get there? So you had this period at university... What was the lure that brought you here? My degree's in agriculture, in animal science, and so after that I went home to the farm for about six months and then got a job uh, with a national feed company. The first time I was aware of Cumbria was T Bay Gorge driving up to a sheep farmer meeting in Clifton after several days of snow and it was dusk, and the Howgills and the other side were just. White and looming over the motorway, and I thought, wow, this is quite a spectacular landscape. Anyway, my wife also joined that company. She went back to take over the the family business in Liverpool, which was a boarding kennel. What we discovered when we'd been living in Liverpool was when we were going up to Aberdeen to see my family, we'd go up again up the Teabay Gorge, the M6 corridor, look out over the Howgills, and we were just blown away by that scenery. That's That's a real shop window for Cumbria, and we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could ever? live here, if we ever get the opportunity to live here. And that was uh, sort of tucked away as a a wee ambition. And then when we were in Yorkshire, somebody very kindly said, come and work for us and you can live anywhere between Penrith and Preston. Fabulous. So that was it. So we came and we found this very small farm that nobody else wanted that we could afford near Appleby. As a result of that, we joined the CLA, Country Landowners Association, as as members, saw a job advertised for the director for the North West, thought I'll never get that but I quite fancy it and got it and then spent 14 years as a director with the CLA that got me into contact with, used to work with friends of the Lake District, sometimes alongside them sometimes against them and then after a bit they were looking for, at the time they were called director and that was in 2014 I threw my hat in the ring and got that job and that brought me to this role in early 2015 which is when I took post We've arrived at the lee or the bower of some
1: pretty grand beech trees, so we're sort of a third of the way up Latrig. Uh, we're standing beside a couple of one prostrate, one standing stoops, and I'd like to reflect on those years before that great rally in Fitz Park.
2: Well, at the time, um... There were lots of smaller organisations going right back. You could trace this back probably before the flooding of Thirlmere. But Thirlmere where there was this first mobilisation of what are they doing here? How can we let them do this? That's maybe the birthplace of environmental uh, organisations and environmental campaigning. There was this realisation that it wasn't just the opinion of the landowner that mattered, that you could organise a campaign, you could directly appeal to the public, you could get hold of the decision makers. Everything sort of sort of changed then. It didn't just become local objections, local protests. You could draw attention to this is a, a, a wonderful area, look what people are going to do to it. So that was the start. And then there were all these different organisations, Lake District Defence Association, I think it was called, uh, and others all the way through, and famous names like Canon Ronsley are woven through all this. He eventually ended up helping to found the National Trust, but then you you come through and governments were already thinking about how they could do something about getting people out into the countryside. I suppose the first time the high politicians got involved probably Ramsay MacDonald, also from the northeast of Scotland, when he was Prime Minister, he was the one who who started the mechanisms uh, to start investigating how we could do this. But there were several false starts, uh, changes of governments. Friends of the Lake District very quickly got into a, a huge engagement with the Forester Commission. Uh, we found in 34, 35, 36, the Forester Commission had been charged, newly created after the war. country didn't want to run out of timber ever again. The Forester Commission told go plant trees all over the place. George Trevelyan was against that, wasn't he? Absolutely. Especially after the war, lots of landed families had, had lost the next generation in the conflict. Lots of death duties, lots of estates being sold, uh, including Cumbria. And large bits of Cumbria were being forested with these big, dark, plain conifer monocultures. And then when they started to move into places like Eskdale, that's when Friends of the Lake District and CPRE, slightly older, then the Council for Protection of Rural England, started to campaign uh, against government. And you think this tiny, 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 fledgling little charity based in Cumbria, or Cumberland, uh, and Westmoreland as it was then, taking on the might of a huge government department. And at home I've got this little book, it's about the size of an old Big Reader's Digest, and that was the... Consultation response that Friends of the Lake District put together. That's how we did consultations in those days. Takes every argument and just wins it in terms of the environment. It, it takes on all the fact about employment, the jobs that will be created in creating the forests and, and maintaining them compared to the the employment that would be lost if you took all the sheep off and there'd be no farm. Really great document. Uh, and at the end of that, we won. Uh, and the Forester Commission drew this famous red line
1: uh-huh. around
2: the Central Lakes, which effectively ended up as the Lake District National Park. So, big big win there. Very topical talking about conservative uh, prime ministers. The uh, Would you guess it? the then uh, Tory Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin, he described Friends of the Lake District as an organisation that will never be satisfied. And I think if you're known partly for your campaigning, I think that's quite a good battle honour to have across your flag that we'll never be satisfied. We always want what's best. And I remember before I joined Friends of the Lake District, and I would, I would get involved in debates with them. And more often than not, I would be agreeing with them, but sometimes there would be a little difference of opinion. And we used to say when, when something was announced, ah, oh, we'll know what Friends of the Lake District will say to this. And we didn't mean that in a patronising way or a disparaging way. It was just we knew that Friends of the Lake District were so solid and so stuck to the, the proper way that there would be no deviance. And that's one of, the, one of the joys of working for this organisation. Our role is purely to lobby for the landscape, to be the voice of the landscape. And we put all the evidence in front of the people who take the, the decisions, and it's their decision. But our job is just to look after this bit, to make sure that it's here for us, and the next generation, and the generation, and the generation after that. Yes, FLD is part of the bedrock I, th- I think it is. And people use the phrase, we, we sort of punch above our weight. And I think we do. We Do we scare or... Inti- I hope we don't scare or intimidate people, but we get people who thinking, oh, what are friends going to say about this? And, and even friends, I remember when I first came across Friends of the Lake District, the only friends I knew were Friends of Orton School, where we lived. And I thought, oh, they raise money for the, for the National Park. And we do give money to the National Park. We have done. But that's not our role. And then I thought, oh, Friends, that's a bit of a soft soft name for a company. <laughs> we should be action for landscape or or fell force or, or something like that fell force wow but it's the perfect name we are the perfect friend of the lake district and especially when we're dealing with with the with the national park authority when they're doing things right we share all the happy times we encourage them we we celebrate with them but we are the ones who are honest enough to say yeah we love you but don't like what you're doing there you shouldn't go out wearing that uh, you said the wrong thing there. I think that's a great position to be in. And sometimes it means we've got a less than cordial relationship with the park, but we're just sticking to our principles. And that's, that's our job. Our members and our donors and the people who leave us legacies, they know what they want us to use their money for. And we're beholden to do that. We're doing stuff in their name. And that's what we do.
1: You were talking about the National Park there, Douglas. Something very sp- specific as to where we are the rally in Fitz Park and the reference to Latrick and the gathering on the summit all ties in very tightly to this notion of the establishment
2: of the National Park. We were formed specifically to campaign for the Lake District National Park and we wanted it to be the first one. Uh, we weren't quite the first one, but we were in the first tranche t- to come. So the, the National Park was founded in 1951, so there would be people thinking, well, job done. But it's interesting when you look back through the minutes of our charity and you see that, yeah, well, is the job done? Is it actually a good job? we've done something but is it what we want because there was going to be no specific planning uh, group that wasn't set up until the 1970s there was no national parks officer now chief executive created till the 1970s it was all sort of uh, managed by the counties you still had Cumberland and Westmoreland and um Uh, in Lancashire so we weren't convinced that the park would be managed in the way we thought it would be and we thought somebody needs to just stay around and keep an eye on things and that's what we've done and I think many people would argue it's just as well that we did and even now the number of people that will come up to me and say this is your time this is when we really need you, or people say, Well, do you know what I never really got friends in the Lake district? But now I now I get you, now I know why you're there, and now I know what you're doing. And I think there is this growing awareness of what we've got here, how vulnerable it is. And you think of Cumbria as this really rough and tough and rugged place, but we know it's really fragile, and it's not just the climatic effects, we know what Arwen and Desmond did to it and we we still see the scars but politically we're very, very vulnerable socially, if you think of the the threats we've got to our farming families and to our our communities and villages with houses and things like this we're in a really vulnerable state and a lot of these effects are quite pernicious storms are dramatic, you wake up the next morning you go, oh god, what happened there? but some of these other threats, they're, they're just creeping threats and it's terrifying that we might wake up in 5, 10, 20 years' time and think, what have we let happen? Mm-hmm. And we mustn't get into that situation. We have got to act now.
1: You've referred to the relationship of the friends to the National Park as a
2: critical friend. I, th- I think that's our elevator pitch when people say, what's your relationship with, with, with the park? It's certainly true, uh, but it's slightly more complicated than that, in that the leadership at National Park have got their objectives. They are a business in themselves. They know what they are trying to do. The park also has the Lake District uh, National Park Partnership, so there's 25, 26 different organisations. We are part of that, and we are charged with the the management of the park. So we're constantly interacting with all of those organisations as individuals, and that could be environmental groups like RSPB, the Wildlife Trust. It could be people like the NFU, the CLA, the National Park itself, United Utilities, National Trust, a whole myriad of of different organisations, all with an interest in the National Park. So... I suppose it's like politics. There are all all the time, there are little groups of alliances forming and then that will split because you're moving on to, to something else and you make an alliance somewhere else. So it's a constantly changing landscape. So for example, at the minute we're involved in a study looking at how on earth we can we can move the sustainable transport in the National Park a wee bit further along. So we're working with the Lake District National Park itself there, with ACT, and we'll be doing that as part of the partnership. And our Dark Skies work we're leading that for the partnership again, and we're working with Cumbria Tourism, with uh, the Forestry Commission, and with the National Park again. So it's all these little groups.
1: Okay, well, we're head on. We're in the shade now. We want to get out into the sunshine and get up onto that pasture. Well, we're standing beside a gurgling gill in the shadow of Malendob, but it's also in the shadow of some, a bower of some trees, some conifers and maple. Still a glorious day. The Friends over the years, and particularly recent years, have campaigned to great effect, and one of them was the speed limit on Windermere, 10 miles an hour, I believe. That was controversial at the time. Has it still got repercussions
2: to this day? Yes, it does, I'm afraid. And sometimes when um, we're, in, we're in debates with people, we will still get that thrown back at us, that we're killjoys and, and we spoil people's fun. We seem to have got the, the full responsibility for that. There were a whole host of organisations, including the National Park, who were campaigning for that. But that is an example of sometimes when when we work with the National Park Authority, there are processes or activities that the national park shouldn't actually lead on or be too prominent in and we're quite happy to put our head above the parapets and take the flag so that's where we're a true supportive friend of the park authority but i will talk to a lot of public meetings uh, either trying to recruit members or update people on policy or ask for money basically because we're a charity and often the first question is you brought in speed limits and it hankers Really deeply with some people, so that that was a controversial one. We've been involved in others which have been less controversial. One that went on for an awful long time, maybe 15, 16, 17 years, was the campaign to uh, get the extensions to national parks in the east of the county. Little bit of the Lake District National Park, big bit of the Yorkshire Dales National Park. But that was a great example of how friends of the Lake District work with other organisations, work with communities, work with individuals, gradually gathered support, overcame objections, won people over who, who were less happy with it, and eventually got the decision. And then you get the other big bang-in-your-face campaigns like the proposed zip wire over Therelmere. <laughs> and we, we had 200 people there, and it was pouring with rain, and it was the happiest, happiest day. And we, and we did all these speeches, and we, we got our message across. After everybody went, I, I sort of hung around and I did some media interviews. And then I just went down to the side of the lake and then the sun came out and the wind dropped and just all the colours on, on the bank came out and the sun was speckling and dancing on the water. And that was just one of these epiphanies. You think, that's why I've done everything I've done this morning. Because of this. To keep this. Stop this place from being destroyed forever. That was a really interesting campaign. We had the big Northwest Coast connection where we campaigned against the pylons going through the southern end of the national park. And again, that was a campaign that was very popular. We we got a lot of support, a lot of people joined us, a lot of people uh, gave us donations. And we finally won that over. And that was a really interesting campaign, because one of the things we did in a previous career, when farmers were really upset with supermarkets, a farmer said, why don't you buy one share in Tesco so you can go to their AGM and rant and rave at them? We found out when National Grid board meetings were happening, and we have contacts and supporters with the likes of the uh, Sunday Telegraph, Sunday Times, and the uh, Observer. And we just got them to restart the story about the damage to the landscape in the weekend before National Grid. So we added the reputational threat international grid as well as is this a financial thing and eventually we, we won that battle hooray for us it's about timing isn't it it's about timing and then it had moved on to but then they were going to underground it in the park and as soon as it got out of the park it was going to come up again mm. uh, so we were into um, the surroundings of the park and again that's a special place that needs to be managed differently but then the uh, plans for the power station were aborted, so that's the end of that. And this was the Dozen Valley we're talking about? Yeah, it was, and one of the things that come from that is that because we've got these relationships with the communities down there, they came to us a few years ago and said, hang on, we're, we're here and we look across the road and we see the National Park, we look, we turn the other way and the landscape looks exactly the same and it's not the National Park, could we be in the National Park? So that's when we sort of went around a lot of parish meetings, we confirmed that we had community support. We put a lot of time and a lot of our own money into coming up with a proposal for an extension of the National Park to the south down into the Durden Valley and we put that application into Natural England in 2019 and then it's been held up because of Glover reports and because of Covid. Even although we've done the the bulk of the work that Natural England would do, we haven't got it through yet but we will continue to campaign for that. It's not just one we don't we don't just go into an area and work with a community and then come away we try and make those connections because again we're going to have certainly over that way we're going to have possible uh, the geological disposal of nuclear waste so again we need to be sure that we're working with the support of the local community
1: in terms of current uh, situation uh, Burlington's plan at Elterwater what's
2: your mood on that one so uh, the Alta Water proposal is Burlington Slate want to sort of decommission it as a slate quarry and they want to convert it into uh, basically an attraction in which there'll be things like zip wires, there'll be other activities sort of going through, understanding the history of slate mining, all, all these sort of things. They actually invited us to go and have a look early on and Lorraine, our planning officer and I would have gone maybe last October, last November to have a look around and they explained what they were going to do. We've now seen what uh, the outline plans are and we have huge reservations certainly from a, an out and out planning point of view it's a major development within a protected landscape that is not for the common good so that should stop it uh, in terms of the sanford principle which we think should be utilized in many more uh, applications sanford is we've got the two objects of a national park which is the looking after the landscape and the public enjoyment and sanford says that when there's a irreconcilable difference between those two the environment should always win so this would be a case of that concerns about traffic anybody who's driven or walked or cycled to elta water will know what the roads are like and the thought of if there's going to be a car park for 200 cars how many car movements a day are there going to be going up and down there there's quarry traffic at the moment but i think quarry traffic is restricted by part of the license uh, we know that the quarry as part of an extension to their working licence a few years ago had to put together a nature restoration plan for the quarry so they'll have one of them in, in a desk drawer somewhere. But what is interesting is that it's a bit like some of our other campaigns, there has just been universal condemnation. The amount of correspondence we're getting from people saying this just cannot go ahead. It's, it's up to, to Burlington what they do, but if they want to go ahead it's going to be a it'll be a campaign for Friends of the Lake District.
1: One of the other campaigns, of course, is Green Lanes and the use by certain groups, like 4x4s, of routes that really are, to my mind, certainly, inappropriate for a gentle landscape.
2: Have the friends got a view on this? So the issue with these, let's call them unsealed roads rather than Green Lanes, is that there are many people who think that the use of these roads by... 4x4 users who specifically find them because they are challenging and they want to struggle up and down country tracks flies in the face of the quiet enjoyment of national parks and affects the enjoyment of other people. I suppose a bit like uh, the water skiers. Water skiers said you've spoiled our enjoyment but everybody else on the lake and around the lake said, well, great, it's quieter and calmer now. There are some very, very strong campaigners who want this stopped. Other national parks have used traffic regulations to be able to to stop people from doing it they are rights away so these users currently have a legal uh, right away of using it but we're determined that we're going to help and try find a solution one of our team is on a a management group that's been set up to try and look at all the options that could be explored before you get to an outright ban and you could think do you do it gradually do you say well you ban it on certain days of the week, certain months of the year, where it's doing the most damage, where do you have the most walkers. I think we've got to exhaust that process before we start to go to the next step. But we're working our way through that. There's one lane, the one at Tilbeth where we know that the farmers who lived on that lane sort of moved away from it. The lanes were so badly damaged that they couldn't use their quad bikes. And, and you think, what are you doing? But people will come a long way. I mean, I live near Appleby, and there's been some nights you go into um, the square... And it looks like we've been invaded by the Netherlands. There'll be all these Land Rovers and big green 4x4s. And when you Google the name on the side, these are companies abroad that say, come in and we'll take you some extreme driving, some quiet lanes in the Lake District. Now, it's great for Appleby because they're getting all the income and none of the damage. I and mean, these people are coming a long, long way to do this. Well, we'll pursue
1: this uh, challenge between tourism and the landscape a little further as we get higher up Latternick. We chose to break off from the Cumbria Way and come up the steep pasture bank. We're on the open fell, which is marvellous. The view across the Vale towards Bassenthwaite, so the low land between Dowentwater and Bassenthwaite, mire of my house area, and this wonderful sweep of fells. People come to Keswick and they fall in love with the setting because of Skidder, really. It's a stylish, elegant backdrop to everything. We're looking at this landscape of trees and pasture. At fundamental basis, it's an agricultural landscape. That's why the National Park was acknowledged and became designated as a World Heritage Site for its agricultural or pastoral cultural roots. The impending transition from the EU payment system to Elms That's going to have a fundamental impact on the landscapes that you nurture yourself and react to.
2: How are you going to cope with that? The farming side of protected landscape, it's always been part of the argument, always been part of the discussion. If you go right back into history when they did the Scott Report, which is one of the reports during the Second World War, which sort of spawned the creation of national parks, it's amazing that in the depths of those really dark times when the country was on its knees the government was still thinking what are we going to do when this is over? How do we look after our countryside? How do we make sure that our people have got physical and spiritual well-being? So they drove that. Scott back then said the best way to look after the countryside, the landscape regardless of profitability of itself as a business was farming and 70% of this country is farmland so if we're going to have any impact on the management of that landscape for what we want it to be then my view is we have to work through farmers. That was my pitch when I came to Friends of Lake District, because of my background because I'd come from farming rural economy background people said, what's he doing at a landscape charity? And so I was very open with my pitch and I said that if we want to manage the land properly, we need to look after our land managers, which in this area are mainly, mainly farmers. We've got the the United Utilities and the, the National Trusts and the Forester Commissions, but most of the Lake District is in private hands. Those who criticise what farming have done, those people say, has oh, been too much sheep, too little of this and too much of that, they shouldn't criticise necessarily the farmers directly for that. Farmers have simply been responding to policy, whether it's European policy or government guidance. They've been given a policy, they've been funded and support paid to, to follow that policy, so this is where we are. If we're now saying we want something different, we want nature regeneration, we want better water quality we want water management we want carbon storage then they're all perfectly legitimate land uses but there's not necessarily a payment for that if the nation want that then there needs to be some uh, support for that and amongst that, there will be the traditional land products. There'll be food, there'll be timber, there'll be stone, there'll be building materials, all these things. So there needs to be a balance, and in my view, they're all legitimate land use, they should all be called farming. Yeah, there'll be some some parts of the country, not necessarily here, where you can give farmers the head, and they just want to go out and, and grow potatoes, because that's what will do best for them. Then they should be allowed to do that. In more sensitive areas, protected landscapes like national parks, AONBs, then we should have a package of, of policies instead this is what we think we would like from you, Mr. Farmer, Mr. Manager of this land. In the olden days, it used to be, um, government would talk about we were in partnership with farmers, but they basically give a farmer a big file and say, this is what we want you to do for the next 10 years, and if you don't do it, we'll come and take all our money back from you. I think they should recognise that our farmers know their part of this landscape better than anybody else. They know how it what will happen if you if you put a different crop in, if you put more sheep, less sheep on, if you put trees there. They'll know what's going to happen if a storm comes in a, in a particular direction. They know how that land behaves. If we don't sustain those farming families, and some of them are really vulnerable, there'll be lots of farming families as they sit around their kitchen table having really serious discussions about should we still be here? If government is now saying we will pay you a lump sum to get out of farming, should we just cut and run? And that would be absolutely terrible because we'd lose those we'd lose the skills we'd lose the land management skills we'd lose that family's contributions into the local communities which in smaller more dispersed communities are really really significant and we don't know what will come behind we know that there are people from outside the county we could buy a big bit of land get all these green payments plant a lot of trees or we'll greenwash the area and that will change the landscape some people might say that's a great thing but again when you just stand and look at this you think why would you want to change this? If you ever lost this, how on earth would you get that back? Nature put that there to begin with, but then we've got thousands of years of... Man's interaction. Man's interaction. And until 30, 40 years ago, that environmental vista, that quality of view, that quality of experience, that was a byproduct of farming. For the last 30 or so years, farmers have been given money to stabilize it or improve it or or whatever but it's farmers that have done it and um, I really really worry I mean we were talking earlier in a different context about um, about howling clearances and we're almost getting no, I suppose it is a bit of a clearance I think some areas the population is going to change or it's actually going to depopulate I think if some farmers come out and some of the, the properties become holiday homes or, or whatever, and you're going to get big, empty areas. And when you're old and you're living in a valley, you, you like to know where you've got a neighbour, not too mm, far away. Quite. And what happens to the community, what happens to the schools, what happens to the village shop, the filling station closes, and then it just becomes harder and harder for anybody to live there.
1: Archaeologists say that
2: the landscape hasn't changed much in 2,000 years. You can believe that, can, apart from sirens and the background. You can, <laughs> sirens. You yes. can believe it, but it's, it's one of the stories I tell. When Prince Charles came up, 2018, he came up and he dedicated that big plaque in Keswick oh, yes. uh, for World Heritage Site Crow Park. Crow Park, and we were all standing there in our suits and things. And at one point, he quoted Psalm one, "I to the hills will, will lift mine eyes." So I just looked into the jaws of Borrowdale, and it was a r- crisp, clear. Winter's day And the view Again was just one of those views You just stop And I didn't hear Another word That he said I was just transfixed by that I, I just never looked away
1: Entranced Absolutely it, it just gets you It just sucks you in Let's get entranced With the final legs To the top I've arrived at the bench, the famous bench overlooking Keswick. It's a famous bench because everybody who comes here who maybe have never comprehended the majesty of the Lake District are blown away. And on a blustery day as today, where the sky is blue, the fells are dappled because there's a bit of a cloud that's dappling them, but you've got the wonderful sweep over to the left of the Helvellyn Range and the Dodds, Great Dodd. You can see the dark shadow of Helvellyn Summit sweeping round by Seat Sandal and Bleaberry Fell and Waller Crag, embroiled in trees like a great cascade of green. And through beyond Keswick and Derwent Water, the Jaws of Borrowdale and Grange in Borrowdale and Glaramara, and you just can see a bit. Of Great End and Lingmell. Great Gable is lost, you just see a bit of Kirk Fell, but you've got Dale Head, uh, Robinson, High Style, Red Pike above Buttermere, and then Causey Pike, Crag Hill, uh, Grassmoor, Grisdale Pike, the Windlatter Fells covered in uh, a mantle of trees, conifers, and then Dodd, Bassenthwaite below it, and of course the wonderful sweep of Skidder itself. We're at a a momentous spot. This is where the word sublime meets the expression beautifully, because you're looking at something very significant that has an emotional impact the minute you see it.
2: Just what you said there, Mark, this is one of my favourite places in the lakes. I've I've been up here uh, a few times with friends of the Lake District, but I think the best time was for our 85th uh, birthday. We came up here on Midsummer's Eve 2019. There was about 70 of us set off at the foot of the hill and we came up. And loads of people were on, the, were on the fell because of the time of year. And we just gathered them up. They just all came with us. And just down here, towards the end, we just sat there and we opened the cake and cracked open a few bottles. But interestingly, for some reason, I was Googling Latrig and Friends of Lake District and I found a lot of people that, those people that we picked up on the night, went off and they wrote vlogs or, or memories on the website. And one really struck me. And if I may, he says, Something changed in me that evening. Something came back to life. I knew somehow this place was already truly significant, that it was going to shape me somehow. And it did. It really, really did. On that long, hot June night when I hiked up to watch the sunset on the longest day of the year, sitting on a grassy ledge on the edge of a gathering by friends of the Lake District who read aloud a poem about friendship and landscapes and how they weather and change together, bringing tears to my shining eyes as the sun melted behind Skiddaw. And I thought, I can't say anything better than that.
1: Well, you climbed a little higher and uh, it's a moment to give a little thought about that little bit of tension between tourism and landscape. To large groups of people, there has been, they feel, a bias more towards tourism to the detriment of landscape. Do the friends have a particular perspective on this?
2: It's this age-old debate and, of course, it's the landscape itself that attracts the tourists. Yes, there, there has been... Certainly visitor, visitor numbers, and, and maybe a bigger issue with, or a more immediate issue, with how visitors come and transport and, and moving around the Lake District. The Lake District is quite a compact area.
1: Narrow roads.
2: Narrow roads. I mean, the, the roads were designed for different times, um, uh, for different vehicles. They've uh, got to go around big areas of water, and... They're not designed for for modern traffic, which has been coming in increasing numbers. And I was talking to, to two people this morning who've come up and were trying to go around the county on a bus... And they spent yesterday afternoon with a very, very angry bus driver who first of all arrived late because he couldn't get through the roads with people parking on the roadside and then got held up after they were on. So a lot of debate now about managing transport. Yes, you can go wider. You can say too many visitors in a particular area causes damage. We know that some footpaths get really badly affected by too much footfall. Uh, We were talking about the effect of 4x4s on some unsealed roads before. But we mustn't let the message go out that Cumbria is anti-visitors because we need that money coming in to create the jobs. And a lot of family businesses depend on visitors coming in. But we need to be very open-minded. We need to find ways of encouraging people to want to move around Uh, differently we can't just say ban cars we've got to make people want to leave their cars behind uh, and make traveling around uh, the lake district part of that adventure going from bus to steamer to train to bike to walking a bit whatever we ran a sustainable transport conference 2019 where we just wanted to ask the questions and bring people in with solutions and if you go to europe there are examples there where you, you go into an area you hand your car keys over and in return you get this golden ticket and that gets you onto buses, trains gets you a bike hire you just sign up to not using your car for that week but we promise that there will be other ways of you moving around leave the car we've got to be able to guarantee that other way of moving around and it just becomes more stressless uh, more, is that a word? more stressless uh, more enjoyable local community benefits everybody slows down it's surely better. Make the world your oyster. There must be other ways. If we can, if we can spread people out through the year, um, we have far too many. I think, personal view, too many day trippers or people just travelling through Cumbria. If we could get them to come and stay, we would reduce. In some extent, the amount of traffic, because you wouldn't have people driving in and out on the same day. They'd be staying somewhere. They'd be spending some money supporting a local business, and they could experience more. We were talking about the sunset over over Skiddaw. They could see the sunset. They could enjoy our dark sky experience, and that's something we should be we should be promoting more. We should be encouraging people to come throughout the year and not just in this peak period we've got we've got so much to offer again we've been talking some of the the best experiences and the best views you get of this landscape are on those special winter days
1: you've done a lot of campaigning work over the years but a lot of what you might call bread and butter work below the radar to most members even
2: Yeah, I mean, we've got our planning officer. And yes, our planning officer is high profile. We were talking about Elta Water just now. uh, So she's high profile there. And when there were car parks, uh, Oleg Moss, Cat Bells, people are very aware of our planning work. But a lot of our planning work just quietly goes on we don't get involved in, in a lot of the planning applications. It's a tiny proportion of, of the plan applications that goes on, but every single one has been checked. And there's all sorts of consultations, whether it's water usage, water quality, all the ELMS discussions that are going on at the minute. Glover. Glover, again, makes the news every now and again, and it goes away as a little bit of a damp squib. We're not really sure what's going to come of that It's going to make much of a difference. And that goes goes on all the time. And a lot of the work that we do, you don't necessarily notice it, but if we didn't do it, then you would notice the consequences. question that I, I get often in meetings, people lobbing the question, well, what what difference has Friends, the Lake District, made? Which is a really good question, but it's a really hard question to answer until I thought, well, hang on, and not try to run down my country, but if you just go a few miles up the M6, once you cross the border, and you go up the M74, and you look at all the uh, pylons, and wind, and wind, wind turbines, and the square blocks of conifer, and buildings just dropped into the landscape, you think, well, if we hadn't been doing what we've been doing for ni- nearly 90 years, would Cumbria look look at that? And we've got more waste. But again, you go down to Bay Gorge, that's a beautiful drive. And again, Friends of the Lake District, far-sighted. I've got uh, a paper in my office where 1938, Friends of the Lake District said the A6 is unsustainable uh, as a route because it's dangerous, uses too much fuel, uh, and it gets blocked in the winter. We could go up the west coast, but that's too far. We could go through the middle, up past Grasmere, totally wrong for the Lake District. Or why don't we follow the railway line? But if we're going to go up that gorge, respect the landscape, separate the carriageway. So that was written in 1938, and that's 30 years before the bulldozers went in. And that was Friends of the Lake District. Fabulous.
1: Oh, well, we move a little bit further, because this is uh, a wonderful day to be gaining height. You get to the top and you think, wow, look at that cairn, isn't it an impressive sight? Oh no, not on that trig. Nobody's deigned to put anything significant here, while well, the view is enough. Uh, there's a few swelled elves, sheep, and uh, the odd crow floating by in the breeze, and the all-round view is stunning. Um, I'd like to
2: ask you a few questions of you, uh, Douglas.
1: What was your first Lakeland memory?
2: Oh gosh, I can remember that. I was never a fan of the Lake District, couldn't get it at all, and I was spoiled by, when I was a student, I read Plague Dogs, which is a Richard Adam books, about two dogs that escape from a research centre, and then they're hunted through the Lake District. It's a really bleak tale, with really horrible conditions, and it's illustrated by Wainwright's Wainwright. Black and White. And everything just looks so hard and horrible, and I thought... Oh, where's the fun in that? So we came to Cumbria But say it was the the Westmorland Dales It was the east side of Cumbria That brought us here And when we first came here We were in a rented house in Melkenthorpe, And I had to go to a business meeting At the Low Wood Being a stranger here I looked at the map And this could go down the M6 Or, oh, there's a road goes straight through the middle No idea about Kirkston Pass Or anything like that <laughs> So off I go I'm driving away Thinking about the the day ahead whizzed past Dale Main Didn't even notice it And then you just come to Allswater and it's there and it was a frosty November morning and again you just stopped the car. What? Where? How? What? (laughs) How did that pass you by? And you think that's it and so Allswater has always got that impression and also from Friends. Friday night I handed my notice in to come to Friends. That weekend we were hosting some American students uh, at home. We'd taken them around the Eden Valley over there on the Saturday and they thought this is lovely and then on the Sunday on the way back to their bus we took them through Lowther Park showed them Lowther Castle, told them the story of the Yellow Arrow, and then we came through through Pooley Bridge and again it was a frosty winter day, big open blue skies, view down past the, the boathouse and as we went past it you could feel the car sort of shake as these three people saw All's water for the first time and I thought <laughs> do you know what, I know what I'm going to do now. So that's got to be my first impressions yeah. Have you a favorite fell? If you count this is a fell. I've got so many happy memories of this just coming up with with things we've we've done with with friends. And I say that that midsummer eve we came up. That was just such a magical night. The experience, just the view. I mean, this view was showing itself off at it its best. And then say the sun just plopped down behind, behind Skiddaw. But just the fellowship and the buzz and that drone shot at the end of that Terry Abraham film. That's one of my favourite images of all. again, you look at you see Darwin Water, you see Bassenthwaite, and you see just people. People in the landscape, and that's what it should be.
1: Absolutely. We're witnessing them today. People walking along that parade of a the path there. You get that emotion. Wainwright or
2: Wordsworth... I'm going to say, um, neither. I have to say I prefer Simmons's book. That's loyalty to Friends of the Lake District as well, one of our oh, founders. Can, can you remind listeners of that book? Walking in Lakeland, uh, it's a really uh, insightful book. It just explains everything as he goes along, warts and all. He talks about the litter problems we had then. So I think it's a really excellent primer. And again, when I joined Friends of the Lake District, there were a lot of people... So, why have you gone to join them? And I remember um, a farmer fr- from Lancashire walking towards me very purposefully. She said, You're with Friends of the Lake District now. I've got something for you. And I thought, What is it? And she said, I found this, this book in a bookshop and I bought it for you. And it was Walking in Lakeland by H.H. Simmons. It was a prison. So, brilliant. very fond of that.
1: It's a very seminal book. Uh, have you
2: uh, a favourite view? That, again, that changes, and I've maybe got half a dozen There's views at home on our farm. There's views when you come down off uh, Stainmore, looking across the Eden Valley. When you go down Ashfell, looking across the Howgills. Hartside, where you see the whole of Cumbria, the Solway in Scotland. And I go back to that, um, the jaws of Borrowdale. How can you beat that? And then there was that time going up towards Whitehaven Golf Club on a, on a Saturday summer night past Rose Hill Theatre and you're looking east in the Lake District and I'd never seen that perspective before and I just had to stop and I've got to go back with a book because I, I couldn't recognise anywhere oh. but jaw dropping
1: well you use my guides of course that solves thank that thank you <laughs> yeah yeah uh, have you a particularly memorable walk that you would like to
2: share with listeners um, I think my favourite and it was it a walk or a gill scramble um, and it would go back to when our children were young but old enough to, to Gill Scramble and we went again into the Howgills and we went up uh, Black Force so we are up Black Force and then t- at our picnic at the top, and then a long, long, gentle walk down. And I still see them with the little red, yellow and blue rucksacks sort of bobbing up the, the gill in front of me. And, then, yeah, that's seared in my memory.
1: Amazing. I remember going there with Wainwright to see the Black <laughs> Force, but we didn't get gills scramble. It's midsummer now, but have you a favourite season?
2: Uh, I'm autumnal. I like the colours. And I like the smells of, of autumn. I like when things start to smell soily and damp. And it's sort of harvest time and we're getting into root crops and animals are starting to come in. There's that time about dusk in autumn if you're on a farm. You can hear all the all the sort of farm animals are settling down and having that last munch of hay and, and the birds and the pheasants. They're settling up. They're going into their roosts and the trees and there's that... Just that special time. It's the smell through the day and the sounds at dusk of autumn. I really love. Um, have you a Cumbrian hero or heroine, dead or alive? Oh, I think that would be. I um, would be very divisive if I say I would a Cumbrian hero. I just have the utmost respect for Cumbrian people as as a whole, especially country folk, because I'm a country person. I've got this um, cyclopedia from the 1600s, a facsimile obviously, and it goes through all the counties and it talks about Westmoreland as being the most unwelcoming county in the country to either live in or to farm in. When we moved to Cumbria folks said, oh you'll always be (laughs) offcomers, and never found it. We just found that people have been so welcoming and great neighbours. My first day studying agriculture, our professor of agriculture who is one of these guys that you didn't appreciate until you read his obituary and you wish you'd spoken to him more. Because he he was the guy behind the Dig for Victory campaign and all these things. But he said that um, when a farmer looks at buying a new farm, he looks at the, the climate first and then the soil. Because he can do something about the soil, he can't do anything about the climate. And no matter how clever that professor was, there are three things that you should look at. The third thing is your neighbours. If you yeah. have good neighbours... <laughs> You're, you're, um, you're in a good spot
1: My grandfather looked at the water supply Have <laughs> you a favourite Lakeland food or beverage?
2: I like Quite a lot of Cumbrian cheeses uh, And Hardwick meat uh, I think has got a flavour Second to none After we started keeping Hardwick's and, and putting our own meat in the freezer I remember I did uh, a series of roadshows With a, a famous butcher from Brampton Norman Kyle and at the end of the final one he gave me this big leg of Texel lamb And he says, there you go, we've, we've worked together, have that And so I put it away and I thought, oh that would be really, really lovely And we got it out No flavour No, it was lovely, moist, perfectly good lamb But compared to Herdwick Herdwick mutton, you can't beat it Yeah, well the Queen had Herdwick at our her wedding breakfast and at our coronation so
1: and, uh, Prince Charles relishes it yeah. himself on this day where a certain Prime Minister stood down, if you were to fill his boots now, is there one thing you'd like to do for the landscapes and heritage of Cumbria?
2: I'd like whoever comes in to go back to the founding principles of national parks where it was yes it was about protecting the landscape but yes it was thinking this is for the benefit of people landscape by itself is is just a place the more you read of the dowers and the hobhouses uh, and the people who introduced national parks they really got it they saw the value to the population of being able to enjoy and be part of these places and if we could just get that underwritten into every bit of policy. If I was a politician, one of the things that I I would say is, apart from free parking in hospitals everywhere, if you could give every family access to a bit of woodland, if you could give every family access to something like this. This needs to be shared. Uh, And it's like we were saying earlier, I, I never really appreciated it. And you have to talk to the people who have to work to get here, who have to spend money to get here, who have to give something up to get to places like this. Then you put a value on it and I think politicians need to realise what that value is and if they, it means they have to invest in it to make sure that it's looked after, if they have to invest in it to make sure that as many people as possible can benefit from it, then that is really good use of public money.
1: What would be your perfect Lakeland
2: day? Gee, perfect Lakeland day, I think, would be... I can think of a number of places, so I better not specify them, where I would go for uh, a breakfast. I think I would take our walk in the morning and I think that would be somewhere in Westmoreland. And certainly through our Westmoreland Dales project, we've created a real number of good walks. Might even be up High Cup Nick. Which is, I always used to think was a secret valley until you get up and you find that everybody's walking it when you, when you see it from a distance. Um, Narrowgate Beacon's
1: the place to go there. Is it?
2: Oh, okay, okay. Um, wherever I went, I think I would end up back in our farm because we have a spot which at the end of our wood, we've got a bench that looks across our last field, then across over nothing, and then you'd get the sounds of dusk and all the birds, the woodland birds, the field birds, the birds out on the allotment, and then the sun. There's a little fell and the sun just plops down behind that and we keep telling people what a great place to be that is and we've been on the farm 23 years now and we've done that twice and that's one of the reasons that I'm stepping back from Friends of the Lake District I want more time to be able to savour what I tell people about
0: Journey's end, and we're at the car park, kind of near the top of Latrigue, Is that how
1: you describe it? Top of Gale Road. We've done a linear walk, but there again, we got taxi to take us back.
0: Yes, yeah, a little bit lazy, isn't it, of us? But uh, not not
1: an actual taxi. My wife doing her duty as she uh, bravely does so regularly for us. Your wife doing her duty. Oh, like, no, no, oh no, no, the wrong we might, word. We wrong might word. get
0: complaints about that uh, from Helen, indeed. <laughs> Uh, occasionally there's a tea and coffee van here, isn't there?
1: Oh yeah, being on the fells, it causes hell.
0: God, it's a lovely afternoon, early evening, Cloughhead looking fine, and yes. Blencathra.
1: Blencathra, uh, yeah, you can see uh, Bleas fell, and Great Mel fell, which is James Rebank country, and just in the distance you can see Nock fell and so on of uh, uh, Pennines. Well, and you can see the little white knobble. Oh of... yes, on
0: Dun fell. Yeah. Great Dun Dumb, okay, so uh, I've worked with Douglas uh, for a few years now. I think Friends of the Lake District, you know, I don't really get everything right all the time, is what I would diplomatically say, but I think it's a really, really important charity and I think its work is needed now as much as ever. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, Mark. Oh,
1: absolutely. You can see that in, uh, you can almost see it in his eyes and in his voice once you get involved with it once you get the magic and the power of the landscape into your veins you know that this is a landscape that needs the friends of the lake district like nothing else it's the one solid factor that keeps this place special it's that oversight it's that critical friend
0: that Douglas spoke about that can be independent, whether it's from other organisations, whether it's from the tourist pound, which of course dominates to some extent, uh, the economy up here and the power structures, it can be independent. It's got a, a significant membership, people all over the world, but many, many people in this country. And, and people bequeath in wills, uh, very willingly. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it receives a lot of money in legacies. And... It's a time of change, uh, recruiting a new chief exec at the moment uh, who will take the baton, I guess, from Douglas and and we'll see what the next chapter is. But nice to get Douglas on. This is his penultimate day of work, actually. So very very kind of him to give us that time. And I thought what he really captured for me was that absolute joy. You know, his talk about Oldswater and the view that they had from the Top of trig when they did their birthday celebrations. It's true. He kind of gets that spiritual joy
1: doesn't he Uh, of people that people feeling this landscape is all about people and our connection with it and he he imbues all of that
0: Um, we should probably say if you're interested just go on to google friends of the lake district um, uh, to, to find out some of the fantastic campaigns, projects they've got. They've got a lot of land, they do events, dry stone walling competitions, give a lot of money to, say, Fix the Fells and some of these charities. So a huge amount going on. Anyway, on to our short burst of housekeeping, Mark. Well, this is episode... 84. 84 for all previous 83 episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. You can sign up to our newsletter there. Uh, we're on social media. At Countrystride1 on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to support us, you can do it in three ways. You can share it with friends and family who you think might be interested. The more listeners we have, uh, the higher we climb up those elusive algorithms. Secondly, you can buy our books. Just go to countrystride.co.uk. Fabulous uh, collection of guidebooks there, all with a Country Stride soul. And thirdly, you can support us on Patreon. Uh, So for as little as £2, which is less than the price of a... uh, Beans on the Fell coffee. (laughs) yeah there you go good you can support us and just help us towards the edit costs and the hosting costs and um, increasing the petrol costs to get us between the uh, different podcasts next up I think we're talking about Beatrix Potter with um, somebody a real champion of of Beatrix Potter's life and works and then we're talking about trees I think um, trees in the landscape and kind of historic who planted some of the classic larches and stuff like that? Mm. A lot of them were planted by Wordsworth. So I'm going to talk about uh, how a lot of these amazing trees that, that inspire us. I was in a, came uh, into the land yeah,
1: so I was in uh, at High Close the other day, and that's an arboretum. It, it is lots yeah. of little arboretums, like at uh, Air Force and so on.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of them were old estates, and kind of this is the era of the Victorian tree collectors. Very, very interesting that well uh, thank you for joining us on this trip up La Trigue, really lovely to actually walk up a fell, such an iconic one at that we haven't done that for a while, it's been wonderful, Um, we're saying goodbye from Country Stride for now